Thank you for joining me, The ADS Theat. I'm Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest. Elsie DeWolf, an American actress of the Gilded Age, became the most famous decorator in the world when she changed professions in the early 1900s, and she's still a force in the field today. Her work and her work ethic inspiring many of today's leading interior decorators. In the studio with me today is interior designer Charlotte Moss, a longtime DeWolf aficionado, and cultural historian Charlie Shipes, the author of Elsie DeWolf's Paris, Frivolity, before the storm. On the phone from Australia is Gillian Davies, a former director of studies for decorative arts at the Savannah College of Art and Design, a former professor of design history at the University of Brisbane, and the author of Gender, Modernism, and Interior Design, Sex, Class, Home. Thanks for joining us. Okay, one of the things that always fascinates me about Elsie DeWolf is, I mean, even now at this at this great reach of time, we're talking 120 years career-wise uh, from her making a splash in decorating, is this fact that even now she seems an incredibly modern woman. And I was wondering if we could discuss a little bit of that, because we're talking about a time period that we think of as traditional, both in terms of style and life and whatever, and she really doesn't fit into that mold. Charlotte? Well, I think there are always going to be outliers. There are always going to be those, those, the ones that step aside and let everyone else walk by. And I think she was one of those. She, I mean, she raised the bar, set the standard, and carved out a whole career and a whole business that didn't exist. I mean, she was a force, that little teeny thing. You know, and what's interesting is that her her background really isn't in design, wasn't in design, unless you're talking about it purely from a stage point of view, right, Gillian? Oh yes, she she did do some set designs, didn't she? And of course, design with fashion is probably quite important as well. And she was certainly that, wasn't she? A, a great fashionista, we'd call her today. Don't like that word, but uh, she had spirit and she strove for what everyone wanted. I think that's why she has she's still um, so interesting to us all. You say a hundred years, but. We all have these needs. You know, everybody desires comfort, luxury, refinement, and style, which is what she was all about. And as Charlotte said, she was outside the norm in that she achieved all those things, a tiny little sparrow amongst all those eagles. It's the paradoxical part of her life, which is on about five different levels, that everybody's still fascinated with. We just can't get to the bottom of it. Why did she do and achieve what she did? But she was an entrepreneur. I mean, she was an entrepreneur that would be on the cover of magazines today. I mean, she would be uh, someone that we'd all be talking about, would all be leading the pack Mm. of female entrepreneurs. We didn't talk about that back then. We didn't talk about business women. I mean, she, right. women didn't even work, let alone be talking about it. Can we, we talk, talk a little bit today. about her her background, her milieu, how she got up to that point? I mean, we're talking about the daughter of a 
pulmonary expert, a doctor, I mean, who's a Canadian in, in, in New York. I mean, it, it, more of an outlier when you're th- talking about New York society. But I mean, she's, she's born in 1858, two years before the Civil War, and she dies in 1950 during the dawn of the atomic age. So when you think about that kind of spread, I mean, that's always very helpful for me to explain to younger people about why she's so extraordinary. I mean, we all knew because of our ages, grandmothers and great-grandmothers or relatives that had lived through the, the, the beginnings of the telephone and the airplane and the, all the great technology of the 20th century. And Elsie definitely was one of those people and she embraced all the technology. She flew with Wilbur Wright. I mean, I could go on and on of all the firsts that she did. And then she created basically the idea of a, a decorator uh, after uh, her film career, career faded. Uh, and then she became an international hostess and a brander and a, a, a endorser of advertising, went on radio. If there had been television, she would have been on television at the time. She's a brand because that's something that every actor has to become, is a brand to step outside of all of the competition. And even as a, a relatively young woman, when she was doing amateur theatricals, which were proper I mean, one could get away with doing amateur theatricals in New York in society. But when she has to become an actual professional in 1890, when her father dies, she's she's 40 years old, and she has to come up with her own brand. And she becomes this master of publicity. You know, I mean, she's not just going to be an actress. She's going to bring the latest French fashion into New York on the New York stage so everyone can see what they should be wearing next season. Jillian, you had said at one point in one of your, your writings about about Elsie being this sort of um, almost like an official representative of French taste even early on. Yes, absolutely. I think she really was that. I mean, she was an agent for France, an accredited agent for France. I think even Jane Smith mentioned that in her in her beautiful book that she wrote about her, which uh, inspired Alfred Allen Lewis's book, which I thought was wonderful. I don't know if you guys have read that. Uh, you know, the, the, the intensity of the detail. I mean, it's amazing. And yes, I think she became an agent for France. But when you were talking about branding and brands, as we call it today, um, she did make her own brand, yes. And I think that this is one of the fascinating things for me about Elsie Wolf was her agency. And I think it started out of those dim beginnings with the, the awful, you know, woolen socks and her father saying she was ugly and chipping her tooth. And when she went to Charteris in, in, in um, Edinburgh and became, you know, under his influence, wanted to become the missionary. And when she met Cora Potter-Brown and Marietta Stevens and became the supporting actress and she realized how to use her own talents with other people, which I'm sure, as Charlotte would say, that was the beginning of being here, an entrepreneur who used her talents to promote her own ideas, and, and her ideas were universal to us all, even today, of, of what she wanted. You know, starting with the Dewar sisters when she met Marbury and the, the Hewitt sisters, she used networking enormously. That was her incredible talent for, as you say, becoming a brand. Now, now, Elsie, obviously, as, as Jillian, as you said, she's she's networking. She's a master at networking. She's a master at publicity. But she had to be delivering something of value to these people that she yeah. is networking with. And and so, Charlotte, what was she bringing aesthetically to 
that part of, I guess, New York, let's say New York, Chicago, San Francisco, what was she bringing to that world that they didn't already have or already know about? Well, she created this thing that they all became desirous of, mm-hmm. was this this ability that she had and this magic that basically she created that never existed before, that everyone al- always thought that they did themselves, that mm-hmm. they could do themselves. I mean, she did the first show house yeah. with Ogden Cogman. Right. When they did that show house on the Upper East Side, and she transformed what we think of a New York townhouse today is actually Elsie's idea of a townhouse. She took the stoop down, she put black and white tile floors, she made it an entryway, she transformed And it was her think. calling card. Yes, and she did it, and she got it published in Vogue, too, and they did the charity work so that you had to pay. Without a PR agent. Without a PR agent, and she did and then sold the house after it was completed. One of the fascinating things about it, I think is it's a homosocial agency. She had a lot of homosexual friends. Their sexuality is not important to me. It's their agency. And they are creative people. They are one, I mean, Tony Duquette and uh, Johnny Mullins, you know, these, these little people who are beady-eyed and very beautiful and very clever. I think what's interesting about Elsie is that she was tiny amongst other people. She was, in in a way, um, everything that the Belle Epoque didn't want you to be, you know, big-bosomed and, and, and whatever. And she, she put herself against these people, and, and that's an onward-going fascination for us, I think. I think it's interesting that you even mentioned the physical because it, it did, oh, it did sort of, so, yeah. it it's did this little diminutive character just sort of set herself apart, and you could just sort of see her darting amongst them all, literally and so. figuratively. I, I, I mean, she didn't have conventional good looks. She didn't have conventional taste. She didn't have conventional interests. But she made it But she made everybody want all of that. Yes. (laughs) But I'm thinking about how how fast and and furiously she became famous as a decorator. And, Jillian, I'm wondering is, did that, did her celebrity at that time, did it sweep up other women who were seeking out careers in that field as well? Yeah, I don't think that happened for a while. I think she was so ahead of her time that it took a long time for the profession to catch up with her. And uh, I think that's because of what later on in the century we've, you know, all rationalized and and uh, put into theories, in, in academia anyway, as feminist history. She just broke through and crashed through so many things. It took about 50 years for people to catch up with what she was doing. Well, you know, she, did, but she also... Uh was very generous with other decorators. I mean, wasn't it Ruby Wildswood that uh, uh, ghost wrote the yes. House of Good Taste? Yes, she did. Who went on she to did. another one. But she was very good friends with Siri Mom. She traveled with Siri Mom. She gave jobs to Jean-Michel Franck. She, she was very, very generous. She wasn't grabby. To be so driven and also to have a generosity of spirit. When I try to conjure up what she must have been like as a person, which any writer about somebody like her wants to do, I think she must have been an incredible combination of charisma, drive, and fun. She had a sense of fun. I mean, Noel Coward and Cole Porter wrote songs about her. No, you can't entertain like that and have people keep coming back to the well, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and and keep having all those parties without a huge sense of fun. One of the things I'd really like to talk about is we've, we've, we've talked a, a, about her career, how fast her career became. But 
Can we talk about some of the elements that she brought into interior design that made her seem so fresh in 1904, 1905? I mean, she's 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 working in a, a French vein. She's she's a, a great supporter of 18th century France, a great admirer of, of French objects, but she's not recreating French rooms. She's using the elements, but in a in a contemporary fashion, to go back to what we were talking about, modernity. She worked in a historically referential style, which obviously reflected the excellent good taste of French 18th century, but she did it in a modern idiom. And I think modernity in her interiors, as you, as you just uh, asked, Mitch, was all about radically changing the interior for modern women. I mean, um, one of the architectural historians, I think it's Beatrice Colomina, said the house is a stage for the theatre of the family. And I think Elsie de was saying was to create roles on this stage for her clients in new gendered spaces for independent women to communicate with the outside world. That was a given. Oh, they have to have a telephone and a desk. This, the stage for the family. We're talking about a single woman with no children, driven. Um, well, she wasn't single probably, the whole time. But you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, but publicly, she's single. But that's and, the other paradox. You see, she's, she's just such a paradox. She, she had her own family. She had her Johnny Mullins and Tony Duquette, she nurtured these people. and the nurturing Sure, she had them call her mother. Yeah. Professionally. Yeah. Right. And she, Babel she Men. She was a mother, yeah. but she became a mother in her own idiom, if you like, for other people. Although she was still quite capricious, and, and sometimes the people like Johnny Mullins, who she became involved with and, and nurtured, he helped her as well, you know, feeding town topics for gossip. She was always looking for, for a feedback, I, her 10%, I suppose, emotionally as well as, as economically. One of the things she did that I think was fascinating is in the first incarnation of the Villa Trianon house, when she first buys it, she had an outdoor terrace uh, where she dined, uh, g- given the w- weather was nice. She later had that part enclosed, and she went on to do other things, the garden pavilion right before the war, and then the Morgan Wing, and then finally the ballroom. But she believed in having lunches and dinners all through the house and garden. She never, the dining room was one of the rare places that anything even happened there, which to me is very ahead of its time. The idea, and in fact, Charles Sevigny, who I knew who just passed away recently, was an early winner of the uh, L.C. DeWolf um, Prize right after the war, and he would always entertain, like, depending on his mood, at his beautiful apartment on the Quai d'Orsay, you know, we'll eat in the by the by the window, or we'll eat inside. I mean, there was always this this amazing fluidity for such a formal situation. But see, this is the other thing I find really interesting because that actually would have been, in many ways, how you would have lived in the 18th century if you'd had any money, because there really wasn't, up until a certain point of time, a formalized room for dining. Mm. You would move wherever you wanted to go, or where the king wanted to. Have, dine with his mistress. So I find that's really interesting. She's got this uh, reaching back into history to pole vault over the idea of the formal dining room that's existed between now and then to create something that seems fresh. The curator of Versailles, who was a very good friend of hers, said, you are a ghost come back to us from the, the period of yes. Versailles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was yeah. known to have said that. Was that was one of the papers I wrote, actually. Is the ghost, you, know, are, are you, a, you are a ghost of the 18th century, but paradoxically, a modern woman also. Yeah, she was. I mean, she did do handsprings in her business and personal life and always ended up on her toes, like Cole Porter said, didn't she? Mm-hmm. All of these things that she broke free from. 
She was never someone who was worried about propriety either, it seems. You know, I mean, she made these beautiful rooms, beautiful spaces, but she's sort of rushing in like a comet and rushing back out again in a, in a way that a modern woman would, but maybe a client wouldn't necessarily. But you see what I mean? It's it's like they're they're they have a bit of her reflected glory. They seem more modern because she's been part of their life. Yeah, I think right. she was. I think people said Elsie DeWolf did this room. I mean, I, she was something to brag about. If you were the Crockers, now the Burlingame Country Club, I mean, that was their house that she did. And she was friends with Charlie Chaplin, and uh, she'd stay with Douglas Fairbanks, and she knew the Hollywood, uh, when she went to Hollywood uh, in, the th- in the 30s and then the 40s. I mean, she she knew everybody. She started uh, one of the dance cl- uh, schools for the castles on top of everything right, she else. Right, Bessie started. <laughs> I mean... Well, if you look at that, I mean, she was the first, so she was going to be the, the one most sought after. And now we've got a different profession. Mm-hmm. So many more people. So that sort of gets diffused. But she was the rock star back then. She took a client to yeah. the IRS, sued the client for not paying her, and went to the IRS about taxes, and she thought it was unfair. I mean, she yeah. did that, too. Yes. I mean, you, <laughs> but, you know, the thing, Julian, which I find really interesting is, is this. She, she goes from this very French you know, uh, historical uh, interiors modernized, meaning refreshed, certainly, to the 1930s, where everything's very modern, lots of glass and lots of mirror and lots of zebra skins and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then when the war wipes her out, when, when Mannheimer's bank collapses and she's having to go to Hollywood to live out the war with not very much lucre around, she reinvents herself again as a decorator, taking what most people looked at as completely unimportant furniture, a completely unimportant house, and and making it in a way that I think a lot of young people now would understand the, sort of the whole flea market, painting it white, putting on a, a jazzy oh, fabric. Blue site. The Blue whole site. makeover of After All is a whole story that I, I don't think ever really got played out. Right. I you mean, she, she, she did Rocky and Gary Cooper's house. She mm-hmm. did Marlene Dietrich's and uh, Mercedes DeCosta, I think. Mm-hmm. And and she she was using Lucite, modern materials. I have the pictures um, that were published that are in the Getty now of, like, table settings. I mean, she used leaves from the garden to write people's names on the place settings. And it wasn't. She didn't have any access to 18th century fur- furniture in Hollywood unless it was sort of pastiche made yeah, pastiche. by... And painted by Made Tony Duquette, mm-hmm. but yeah. and she had Ludwig. Tony Duquette. Do you think Tony's influence in, was in that, or did she influence Tony? Clearly, it's not black or white. You know, they influenced each other. But also Salvador Dali. I mean, she knew him. So the surrealist element of using the leaves and so on, uh, you know, and using other materials rather than. Um, Elevated or precious materials was all part of that, maybe. I think that was Elsie. Yeah, that was Elsie. I think. I think Elsie picked up on the kind of Hollywood glamour. I mean, even the idea. I argued in another paper I wrote once about Mr. Nass' apartment that he set the stage for what a great penthouse was in New York, which Hollywood then recreated in all those Astaire movies where they're dancing across a long balcony. That was Elsie's job. She did that 1040 Park Avenue house, and so the idea that we think of as a New York uh, City a penthouse apartment of a wealthy person in a Hollywood movie of the 1930s is in many ways extracted from Elsie's design for 1040 Park Avenue. Right, for, for, for Condé Nast, the, the publisher of Condé Nast and House and, and Garden this, this and everything else. But, but again, who put her in his publications? I mean, she, again, the networking, the networking. And he knew yeah. that she was as much of a brand as he was. Yeah. 
And they were close friends. I mean, they, they communicated with each other. I mean, she wrote to Condé Nast when Johnny McMullen decided to be full-time with her at the end of the 30s and asked Condé Nast permission to take Johnny away full-time. It was a very small world, and Johnny was in many ways, Elsie and Johnny were sort of Mr. Nass' uh, eyes and ears in Europe for them. They were like correspondents, and there was a lot of competition, and Mr. Nass dies in 42, but people couldn't jump on planes and, and be there in six hours. I mean, Elsie did that. She was a jet setter before there was jets. I mean, she just was. And you know, what you've just said has about every sentence you said has a PhD behind it. (laughs) Really, it really does. Coming from the academic side, you know, the things you've just said, is she's quite astounding, really, isn't she? So can we go back to where it all came from? I mean, where, where did it all come from? What was the beginning of of it all. I mean, when you look at where she came from. Well, she claims it was the dour New York of the Herder Brothers kind of gloomy Victorian house. Whereas I think it's coming from her earliest moments on the amateur stage where she's able to create and become something else in a different period to make herself beautiful in a way that she didn't think she was. I find it interesting that, you know, when you go back and actually look at the the theater reviews, she's talked about as having a mellifluous voice, mm-hmm. a little low, but nothing where she has, has a strange New York accent where she doesn't say things like Toity Toid Street. She wears beautiful clothes. She creates, she helps Froman create beautiful stage sets. I think that's the escapist moment, that is that amateur theatrical 1880s, early to mid-1880s, when she's participating in the amateur theatricals at Tuxedo Park and um, in New York City, and she's sort of moving in a grander world. This is her door into that grander world, and she's discovering what beauty really is, and studying it on her own, I think, and making it happen. After I've been looking at my notes and so on recently, a few nights ago, I thought, well, what was it? Exactly the question you just asked. And I think that chameleon with uh, the gift that she had for adaptability and performance as a means to access all of that, uh, you know, from the early ability to get on with those difficult women or powerful people, she learned how to be a good supporting actress, apart from, as you say, the style setting and uh, the, the presentation. I think agency and presentation are two key words in relation to Elsie. Oh, I think so, too, but I think the supporting actress thing, too, that um, is yeah. really a strong point, Jillian, because, I mean, that's what we all know as decorators, what you have to be is that supporting, that supporting person. Also, the reaction against Herder Brothers, mm-hmm. which is the examples we, we have when we're growing up. You've got that negative example that you react against. Mm-hmm. Then you get this chance to escape. Then you learn to be the supporting person. But then I think there's just this incredible energy and um, optimism that she had about life that just gets infused in everything she did. To come back to the Villa Trianon after the war, to see it in that condition, to be in a wheelchair and say, okay, let's get on with it. Yeah, extraordinary. And she did it again. Yeah. But I think also to go back, Jillian, to what you were saying, is, or Charlotte was saying, when, it, when did this start? Just at the time her 
she's becoming known within amateur theatrical circles. And then when she becomes a professional in, in 1890, when her father dies and she needs the money, there's already a sea change going on in New York. We're just going to use, say, New York as mm -hmm. the center of, of, of certainly of American style. Stanford White's already looking at French 18th century architecture and design. I mean, he's already done a trellis room before she even got to it. Else, you know, uh, Edith Horton's book, The Decoration of Houses, Ogden Codman's buzzing around with that same desire for clarity, for formality, for order. And I think it's just sort of a perfect storm. She's discovering it just as, let's say, a slightly older generation around her. Not, I'm not lumping Codman in on that, but yeah. there, there's a whole group of people who are thinking the same way. But she said things that the different. I mean, she was friends with Codman and she and mm. Wharton, and she admired the book. But the book was written for rich people. Oh, absolutely. And the house in uh, good taste. She was telling uh, the local person in Ohio in Cleveland, who, whose husband was maybe a banker, maybe not poor, but you know, why not freshen up the window with a little chintz? Now she was the Martha Stewart yes. in, in yes. that. Well, this in, is one. Yeah, she was making it accessible. And she was this telling goes, people in a mass audience way. This yeah. goes back to that parent. Jillian has been pointing out. We think of Elsie as being this sort of rich, jet-setting, high-flying, diamond-wearing, couture-buying person with lots and lots of great French furniture. But at the same time, she is speaking to every woman in America, meaning capital E, every woman, one word. Mm -hmm. This is how you can improve your life. Do not look at necessarily what I'm doing, right. but listen to what I'm saying. And that's what makes her very curious to the other set. Mm -hmm. You know, when yeah, you write a book that is geared yeah. to making it accessible, mm -hmm. and then, mm -hmm. then there's this other group that she's decorating for. But she's not talking down to her audience. Exactly. That's what's really and, important, and she never does in yeah. any of her articles. Um, uh, especially between the Frick Commission and the Second World War. I mean, she was a quotable person. People met her at the airport when she arrived from Lisbon. Uh, they thought the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were on the plane. She was quotable. People liked her. She had good ideas. She had good ideas. She did a dinner party at the Automat with her silver and china as an amusing thing to do. Well, of course, you know, wartime had rationing. So she, she didn't let rationing get in her way. She'd figure out another way to do it. That's what I think is so extraordinary about and it. And the sales numbers, yeah, I think, Jillian... Yeah, with she, the, and I this, think that's a significant statement in that she brought the, the, the contrast between the, the high and the low. She, uh, she understood preoccupation, her preoccupation with changes to interior space to suit individual needs of a modern generation. She anticipated functionality and simplification, and even if, as Jane Smith had said, in a curiously dainty way, but she went beyond that, and I think she made a structured compromise between, between the old and new form, and she domesticated the early ideals of modernism, which were social. They weren't to be confused with the international style, which became a linear or gendered narrative years later. You know, social, um, modernism had a great history way before the Bauhaus. Uh, everybody thinks of modernism just as, as the glass and steel and concrete, but modernism was a social ideal. I think Paul Greenhalgh of the uh, V&A Museum has talked about this in, in depth, and he's and Raymond Williams, they're all talking about modernism, and she was a modernist. That was what I was arguing in my thesis, and her preoccupation to, and her changes to limited interior space to suit the individual needs of, you know, apartment dwellers in New York, as you say, lots of people... 
she enabled a fear of the new uh, to become absorbed with the familiar and she made it accessible. She trailblazed functionality for a wide audience, I think. When I was working, uh, um, editing Penny Sparks' book about Elsie DeWolf that was published by Acanthus Press, you know, the subtitle was The Birth of Modern Decoration. And there were people who tried to argue me out of that, who questioned that as a subtitle. Mm-hmm. And I just kept saying, no, but she really was. That really was the birth of modern decoration if we're looking at it from a social standpoint, from a, a lifestyle standpoint. I think what Elsie in her best ways to me, to my eye, or maybe it's just my taste, is I love her, her 18th century loves are a little bit too feminine for me, but I think what we come to call Vogue Regency, which has this kind of modernism mixed with uh, classical form, Mm -hmm. and especially this Hollywood glamour that came with it, uh, that in retrospect, she had a a big voice in what we call now in this very loose term, Vogue Regency. Would you agree? You too. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. I, I think, agree. but I think that's one of the things that's great about Elsie to me is that she's able to start being an actress, being somebody who is branded, being someone who understands publicity, being somebody who's quick with scene changes, set changes, character changes. She senses what's in the air. She grabs it, and she makes herself, if not the first, the foremost interpreter of it at that moment. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. And, and I don't yeah. think that the old simplicity, suitability thing was bumper sticker talk for Elsie DeWolf. Mm-mm. That is what we were talking about, about she talked to those women mm-hmm. and made it accessible. Doing sets. I mean, w- when you're doing sets, you learn how to do it with you know, the glue gun and the, the chewing gum and mm-hmm. the string and, and every other tool you've got at your fingertips. And then she hooks up with Tony Duquette later on, who was the king of the glue gun. You know, so she's always been doing those sort of tricks. At the same time, she's doing the other. So those are the people, to me, that understand that high and low, that understand how to do both. That is really, to me, the definition of style. Yeah, I mean, one of the things she did that touched me so much, and I got to publish it in my book, is she she planned a thousand-person white tie ball uh, right before uh, the Second World War started, but she arranged for a whole meal for the performers in a separate location. There was a full dinner for all of the performers, all the chauffeurs who she knew were going to be driving these people in and out. Uh, She thought of those kind of things on top of just were her uh, dinner guests going to be happy and so on and so forth. She was a strategist, uh, but I think she also walked among kings but kept the common touch in a way that I'm sure that people in hotels and in restaurants liked Elsie. She's the kind of person, a customer you'd like. Oh, she probably tips well. She was appreciative. I mean, just throwing a party for a thousand people, how many of us have done it ourselves without a hired caterer and a party planner? And even if it's for a big wedding, I mean, the fact that she could just do that and then the next day she go to uh, the south of France for the rest of the summer and the war starts. The other thing that I find really interesting about about Elsie, and I think that it's it's something that comes up, and I still think it's it's that paradox moment of her working in World War One with the Ambreen Hospitals, mm. which is on the front lines, on not the front lines of the war, with um, the Ambreen technique yeah. of which was putting wax on pouring burn hot bodies. wax into burn victims' wounds, and yeah. the stories that you hear is that. They appreciated her because she somehow, don't ask me how she did it, she somehow had a light touch 
and was able to get soldiers to calm down and to be able to do this sort of work for which she won the Légion d'honneur, mm-hmm. she won the Croix de Guerre. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another one of these weird paradoxes. She seems small, she seems dainty, she is powerful. And then she comes back to the United States, raises money, and takes more ambulances back to France mm-hmm. to continue her work. I mean, that... And, and she also said on the radio, on the when she arrived at the beginning of the Second World War, send planes. It's in the New York Herald Tribune. We need planes. That's what America... And America wasn't in the war yet. But she already was pontificating on what Europe needed to, to, to fight Hitler. And she had, the, again, she had the agency to do that. I mean, with Anne and so on, they all helped in enormously in that way, didn't they, at the front? But that is incredible, Mitch, as you say, about the light touch and the tiny person she might have brought all the good feelings back to soldiers who were, you know, in terrible pain or or felt dreadful. Their masculinity was threatened, and he was this little angel who they probably thought, okay, I've got to be all right because, you know, maybe I've got an angel at home that I'm going to be okay for, and uh, that sort of thing. And I think going back to her use of the 18th century forms in interiors as well, sorry, this is a digression from earlier, but um, at the turn of any century, I think there's a nostalgia, and I think that her use of forms and, and simplifying the forms in interiors really became essential at that point. Well, there wasn't very much more modern furniture anyway, but um, that was quite fascinating to me that it was the same, it's the same at the turn of our century. Uh, you know, we've got nostalgia for localism or something that we know, farmers markets or uh, interior design programs on the television show that we have this need to celebrate ourselves in interiors, you know, anthropologically speaking, we need our own identity within interiors. She gave people that and I think she gave the identity back to those soldiers, you know, who she was treating and, and what a brave lady to be there at the front, yeah. You know what makes me think of what you said, Jillian, is about the, the revival. I think that what Elsie was also not doing battle with, but giving a counterpoint to was, if you look at the shelter magazine, what we call shelter magazines of the 1920s now, there was this American colonial revival going on at the same time where people were putting spinning wheels <laughs> in their living rooms and, you know, rocker chairs yeah. and everything. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. it all looked... Uh, that was not Elsie. So butter, there was... <laughs> was a nostalgia <laughs> yeah. going on yes. for that too and, and and they lived on the same issues of the same shelter magazines here's a brownstone by Elsie with black and white uh, tile entryway and here's you know where you, your your old granny was spinning cotton <laughs> you know I mean just unbelievable <laughs> contrast well again that relates to that relates to aspects of class doesn't it the different levels in society you know she was she was perhaps um, playing with nostalgia but modernizing it uh, you know that that Irving house before after is, I think, the epitome of, of what she did, really. They've made it into a, a pretty convincingly neoclassical French interior. A, a, a bit of a eclectic one, but it, it's showing where she's going, it's showing where America's going. And but it they got publicity it. everywhere. Yeah, I, I think it took America a little while to catch up to that, yeah. but I mean... But she used it as an experimental. She used her own domestic places, including Avenue Diana in Paris, mm-hmm. and then the Versailles, and then After yeah. All in California, and uh, the House on Irving Place. Those were not uh, static places for her. They were changing all the time, including selling things that she wanted the to hotels. sell. The, the hotels. The hotels. Hotel yeah. interior. So she was she was experimenting. She was her own best client to experiment where she could take it to. 
And I think that's a positive, and I think I know Charlotte might understand this more than any of us, because when you, certainly in academia, you get uh, Eileen Gray and Siri Maugham and, and Elsie being criticised for not being one thing or the other. And some people get so hung up on, oh, but was she an art deco? Was she a modernist? These women change with the times, and but their, their ideology doesn't change. They're doing things with maybe, you know, certain materials, certain f- furniture forms coming in. But I think... Uh, I don't think there's a need to criticise if, if a designer changes, you know, especially with new materials coming in, which I think she did. And Elsie celebrated change. I, I mean, like we, we were yeah. saying, I mean, her going from going from French to going to glass to going to do it yourself. Doing the first you know? <laughs> personal, uh, she did the first private film screenings in France. And when I last visited the Villa Trianon in the Garden Pavilion, the sound uh, film equipment rusting away that Douglas Fairbanks Sr. had organized for her was still sitting there in situ. You know, the day that Lindbergh was arriving in Paris, apparently they looked out the windows and they could see the plane landing at Le Bourget. She even uh, took an early flight with Wilbur Wright in, a, in one of the early airplanes. I mean, film screenings. Now, now it's de rigueur that people have a screening room in their house or a man den or whatever. I mean, uh, she, had, she had regular screenings, dinners and screenings, dinner after dinners from the screening. As I said, I don't know if I said it on the recording, but she did Sunset Boulevard two weeks before she died for a dinner of 24. Well, this is what we're, we're, we're talking about again, that sense of modernity. She's not looking back at much of anything, unless there's an idea that she can repurpose. Re, re, yeah, repurpose, totally repurpose. You know, furniture, a style she can make different, but mm-hmm. she's, she sees, she's constantly a woman of her time. Her spa bathroom. In her spa bathroom, spa bathroom, you know, where I mean, she entertained in her bathroom. You know, I mean, bathrooms that were set up as actual rooms <laughs> with furniture and art, uh, and that were, yes, spa bathrooms of, of their day. Everybody wanted to come to the Avenue Deanna and see her bathroom. That was the number one. Yes, and, I, and I think that all of this might seem very lighthearted and beautiful and so on, but you know, the, archite- the architectural philosopher uh, Gaston Bachelard, he, he suggested once that inhabited space transcends geometric space. So when you talk about modernism as being the international style and so on, and saying, oh, she's not a modernist, she was, you know, using French forms, she's nothing like a modernist, um, it's, that's just so binary and so wrong, mm. because, yes, she, the inhabited space that she designed for, and I'm sure Charlotte would know more about this again than a lot of us, because she does this and, and knows what it means, she did that, and, and her, her interiors meant something for people. And uh, albeit with changing materials and styles through the years. I mean, gosh, we're talking from early 20th century, 1910, 1919, all the way through to the 50s and 60s. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that made her so successful, and, and not really so successful, but really who she is and why we're talking about her in this way, is that she just didn't think about how people thought about her. Because if you if you do that, you just get distracted. Um, you don't think about how people define you. You just do your job. You do what you want to do. You do what needs to be done. You do what you see needs um, needs to be done, or what you want to do. It's just you just carry on. But if you if you start to think about how people are defining you, or or what everyone else is doing, then you're lost. But I think this comes from. This, this beginning as an actress. 
getting yes. the show on the road, getting yeah. the performance over with, breaking the set, moving on to the next town. Right. I mean, I, I think also that she, though, she, you know, interior decorating is very ephemeral. Things change, people sell the houses, people get divorced, people die. The interiors aren't there. It's sort of like... It doesn't happen the, that fast, though, Julie. Yeah, but it, does, it is ephemeral. But Elsie was had the wherewithal to commission Andre Ostier to photograph her, her whole property in 1948. I happened to own one of the albums of it. Uh, she had painters paint the interiors of her spaces, mm-hmm. both her spaces and other spaces. Uh, she was uh, an archivist. of. Uh, she had her jewels done before the, the Second World War. I mean, she was somebody that was documenting things. Her uh, legacy. Her legacy. And I think through those those tangible things like photographs that appeared in Vogue and photographs that she did for her private albums and her records of her uh, her, her dinner parties and the guest list and who came and who didn't, who sat where, diagrams of the, where people sat at the tables, I found amazing. I think that's very interesting psychologically because um, as Charlotte was just saying, she was true to herself. And, you know, you don't you don't bother with that. You don't think about what other people think about you. But she still possesses this elusive quality, which I think is endlessly fascinating to us all, because one wonders at the heart of it what is there. I mean, yes, she was true to herself. And, and, and you say ephemerality in interior design is an important quality, but it's also quite profound. I mean, it manifests a reflexivity of your own identity. Like she said, the house is a dead giveaway. And that is so true. You know, when, you, when I'm trying to impress people I don't know, I've been here in Australia for 10 years and the first few years, it's social exchange and so on. You're, you're bringing people, everything has to be so, well, so you, so reflective of you. When you think, oh, I better get rid of that, that's awful, and <laughs> various things like that. She was true to herself and she did create these spaces, but they were very meaningful spaces, I think, um, in change, in the changes that she went through in, in that century. What is her legacy now to wrap up our conversation? We're in 2019. We're looking back at, a, at someone whose career started in the 1880s and was effectively over, by, let's just say 1941. What is it that we should be looking back toward her aesthetics, her industry, all of it? Jillian? I think in relation to feminist history, she is probably very meaningful to people in She's relevant to people in the 21st century, especially for women. In terms of socialist feminism, her economic reality gave her financial and social power. So you look at how you can do things in the world, and I'm sure Charlotte can give us some ideas about that, or she would understand that. And then as liberal feminism, she was changing the customary legal constraints with political and social reform, and she got away from oppressive gender roles. So again, for the relevance for ladies working today, if you like, um, or people working today, you know, she's really going to just have to behave in certain ways in the workplace. And... uh, break away from legal constraints and promote your own uh, ideology, I suppose. But I think, last of all, don't go to biological constructs. You know, everyone talks about, uh, I don't know, queer theory and gay gay everything these days. But um, I think that you just have to be um, true to yourself and create your own role, irrespective of gender. Charlie, what do you think is Elsie's legacy? Well, I... Th- I think I agree with Jillian completely from the kind of role model issue. I think you cannot open up any magazine or watch anything on interiors uh, without seeing her touches everywhere, and especially using faux, for instance, faux 
uh, animal skins mm. as upholstery as opposed to the real animal skins uh, that were sometimes used. I mean, I think that there are the black and white tiled entry foyer. There's so many things I could think of that I see Elsie in. Scalamandre fabric, some of them, you know, you, mm. they, they, actually, I think she did a few of them for them. If somebody wants to create, I mean, we live in a culture where the, I guess the young generation doesn't like brown furniture and they don't like this, that, or the other thing. But I think that people are, it, they want to order everything from Crate and Barrel and have it all delivered and have it all be new. I, I'm hoping that that isn't permanent. It is nicer to eat off uh, silverware than stainless steelware. It is nice to eat, drink a glass of wine out of a beautiful wine glass. I think Elsie knew the life, that the style of living was important. It, 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 it was a way you enjoyed life if things were beautiful around you. And she said, I couldn't be beautiful myself, but I could make beauty surrounding me. And I think that once people start understanding, I think she can still give us pointers about how we organize our lives, how we organize our living room or our dining room. Uh, you don't necessarily uh, have to. I mean, we're living in a kind and specialist age, uh, people that collect 18th century works on paper, you know, that's a different kind of person that maybe could take some pointers from Elsie. I'm not saying you have to have those original works of art in, anymore because they're quite expensive now, whereas Elsie was buying them when they were quite mm -hmm. reasonable. Uh, Natier drawings and pastels right. and things like that. This was, this was not something that was expensive in the art market of the time. And she knew how to mix and match. Uh, so I, I think that if you want to look towards style or a particular kind of style, I mean, I also happen to like Frank Lloyd Wright architecture, but I think Elsie's was far more comfortable in most cases than Wright. Uh, but I, I, I'm a big admirer of Wright, and I think there's a, a crossover between the indoor, bringing the indoors and the outdoors, integrating the indoor and outdoor that goes on in Wright in a very modernist way, and what Elsie did in integrating uh, the environment of the, the exterior and the ex interior is in Elsie too. And I think that's really fascinating. It, it shows even in the ballroom and the, the outdoor bar with the same matching canvas. I hope she's still influenced in the 21st century. Charlotte? I'm going to go away from the tangibles for a moment. I, I don't really care about the tangibles because I hope that any young designer today would um, carve their own path with their own style and their own whatever they choose to, you know, um, embrace, select and embrace, right? But to me, it was about her fearlessness. It was about her joie. It was the the optimism and the energy and just that fearlessness and love of life. And and it just exuded and was obvious in everything that she did. And Jillian in looking back the way you just brilliantly stated it. Yes, we will definitely look at her in all of those ways. And she, trust me, I don't think she ever had time to stop and think about it that way. But um, I think I would just look at her as being that person who was totally true to herself. And if I had to give any advice to any young designer today, it would just be that, just to stay on course you know, listen to what's going on inside your head and trust your have eye. at it. Yeah, trust your yeah. eye. <laughs> and have at it. Yep. Yeah. I'd like to thank you all very much for being with me today and talking about Elsie DeWolf now, then, and in the future, it seems. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wartzman. 
Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.